those of you who are staying, let's get going right to Revelation chapter 10, uh, chapter 11, since I am moving snail's pace through this book. While you're turning, they're getting notes to you. Let's, let's do a couple questions here. Name something people brag about. Their kids, job, car, house, money. Oh, you, you guys got most of them. Musical ability, sports ability, car, body, their own body. I, I, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not most of us. Okay, we're not in that one. Okay, what things might an office thief steal from the employer or coworkers? Pens? Office supplies? Lunch? Yeah, right? Okay. Time? Yeah, you're desperate if you're stealing coffee. <laughs> but the way it's, the price is going, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, here's what they said. Tissues, stamps, computer, office supplies, there's a whole bunch. Computer memory storage devices, I guess. Thumb drives, I guess, what they're talking about. Lunches, and number one was money. Uh, name something your neighbors might know about you that your coworkers may not know. Where you live. Okay, what'd you say? That you yell? <laughs> How late you sleep? Okay. This one's a tough one, isn't it? What your house looks like? Okay. Okay. Yeah, here's what they said. The car you drive. Evening activities, your pets, how nosy or noisy you are. <laughs> How'd you put it? You, yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. The size of your family and your address was number one. This one's easier. Name a profession that works long hours. Nurse, pastor. They only work one day a week. So, and even then it's questionable, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Doctor, nurse. Truck driver? Lineman? Okay. What was your job, Pooch? What were you? A li- were you a lineman? <laughs> What's that? You forget that. Retirement 22 and you forgot what you did. I envy you then, buddy. Okay. Here's what they said. They said nurses, teachers, lawyers, firefighters, police, doctors. Number one, mothers is not up there, but that should be. Number one answer. No, no. Whatever your job was. That's what we all think. I work, a lot. I work too many hours. Whatever it is. Put the following in order. Now, we're dealing with Revelation, and we're dealing with some of the major events. We're plugging in next to all these major events. But put those in order chronologically when they're going to happen, which comes first. The rapture. Very good. What's next after the rapture? What did you say? Signing of the covenant? Okay. Between who? Antichrist and Israel. Oh, why do I even ask that? It's up there. <laughs> Very good answer. Okay. Which begins the marking of the seven-year tribulation. Then what comes? The seal judgments in the first three and a half years. Okay. So the two kind of, this one can kind of go together. The right at the middle point, Antichrist sits in the temple as God, and then what's kicked off at that same time? Very good, trumpet judgments, and then you're down to just a couple other things. The two prophets will be killed at the end of the tribulation. Okay, Christ is going to return to the earth, and then he sets up his kingdom. Oh, you are so smart. But yet I want to, for my sake, going through the book again with all your intelligence, it helps me to get a little bit more out of the book with what you add to it. So we're headed to chapter 11 is actually where we're supposed to be. And going into chapter 12, what we're doing is in the second half of chapter 11, we come to this spot that we got hung up with last week. It says in verse 13, the same hour that the men were killed, the two prophets, there was a great earthquake, the tenth part of the city, the city being... Jerusalem fell, and in the earthquake there were slain 7,000 people of the name, whatever that may mean. And uh, the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. If we understand it's meaning the remnant of the Jews come to belief in Jesus Christ finally and give glory to God. 
The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Now that third woe is going to be the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded, and there was great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, which we saw in chapter 5, the 24 elders, the 4 and and 20, 24 elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art, which wast, and art to come, because you have taken to yourself thy great power and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and or covenant. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. What he's doing in this section is very similar to what ancient Near Eastern historical writers often did, biblical writers in particular, is what they do is they give you a summary of an event. So what they're doing is he's giving you the summary of the seventh uh, trumpet, which includes everything coming to a culmination. And that could include, as we're going to see, Armageddon. It could include then the final battle, the almost near destruction of Jerusalem, Christ coming back, splitting the Mount of Olives, Jesus then gathering all the people together to begin a judgment. And so there's a handful of things that are said in this text that are alluded to that we're going to then later on, he's going to expand upon. He's going to start the expansion in chapter 15. But typically what happens in authors, they'll give you the summary, the Reader's Digest version. Then they'll give you some background information to help understand how it got there. And then they'll give you more details. That is very common of Semitic writings, historic writings. So John isn't doing anything odd, but it's odd for us. Because for us, we're very chronologically oriented. And we want, we think, well, then maybe there's two trumpets sung, two parts of the... And it's like, no, no, he's just put yourself in the sandals of the writer and the people back then. This was the way that they would often do their history, and this is prophetic history. So what he's doing in this one is the trumpet is sounding. And as soon as the trumpet sounds, the 24 elders in particular I mentioned, there's this loud praising taking place in heaven. Why, when all this destruction on earth, why, when all this death is taking place, especially the demons are running rampant, they're having a heyday, one-third of the earth is wiped out in the last uh, two and a half, three and a half years, excuse me. So up to that point, why are people, the 24 elders, which represents who? We talked about this in chapter 4 and 5. The church. The 24 elders represent the church, and the reason being is they were given crowns, they're given special robes that are, low, that are associated with the church. So they represent the church that's in heaven. Why would we, at this moment, all of a sudden go into a, a, just a, a really praising, thanksgiving, rejoicing, worshiping factor when people on earth, and we know what's happening, we're aware of what's happening on earth, so when people ask the question, do people in heaven know, do they have a degree of knowledge of what's going on? They will, at least at this time. They're aware of what's going on. And how much and all the details, I don't know. But there's an awareness. And so they have some awareness of, of some of the events. Why would there be rejoicing in heaven at this moment? Okay. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Because, Ken, what were you going to add? Okay, okay, so what you have here is all of a sudden, if you remember, at this moment, Jesus is going to return. We're in heaven. We know that he's headed for earth. We know that means that when he's headed to earth, Satan's finally going to be beaten. Would that be exciting? Okay, uh, the rebellion that's been taking place, the high, high level of rebellion in the last seven years, it's going to be done. Okay, we know as well, sin and death will finally be eliminated. Will that be an exciting day? Okay. As well, we know that he's ready to bring his kingdom, as you mentioned, that he's going to establish it. And frankly, what have we been praying for? We talked about this last Sunday. Last Sunday, we talked about the Lord's Prayer. Do anybody remember? Okay. Thy kingdom come, with reference that, could you come back, Lord? And the book of Revelation ends up, even so, Lord Jesus, 
Okay, so it's something that we have been anticipating, and not only us, who else has been anticipating it? Not just church saints. Okay, all the martyrs. The martyrs in, during this time period, they are saying, they've said at the very beginning, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And then you have the Old Testament saints whose spirits are in heaven that we could be interacting with. They're waiting for the resurrection and return to earth with their resurrected bodies. So it's an exciting time. We talked last week, and I wanted to point it out, take the time to do it, if you weren't here, that in my King James that I read, it used kingdoms plural, the kingdoms of the earth. But in the original language, it's singular. And it literally reads, the kingdom of, the wor- of this world become our Lord's. And so that exact reading is giving the idea that even though there's been many, 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 many earthly kingdoms, he refers to them in a singular sense that they're going to be turned over to Jesus Christ. Why would he use the singular kingdom instead of kingdoms? Okay. Yeah, okay. Is there a similarity between all the kingdoms historically, the earthly kingdoms? Yeah, what's been the spiritual significance or similarities? Yeah, they all fail. They're all promoting who? Yeah, so you have that that basic idea that all the kingdoms basically have a similar goal. Uh, even though they may start off good, they, in essence, they're basically under, as we pointed out last week, there's spiritual influences even behind everything going on on earth. Even though God is overseeing or he is in control, he has allowed Satan to have an area of playground, limited playground, where he can do things. And a lot of that playground is in the leadership, is in the organization, is in the politics, is in the philosophy is in the worldview. Do we see that today? Yes. Okay. Do we see a rampant evil taking over philosophies and viewpoints? That's just getting worse and worse. And so we made that observation that as a world kingdom, when it comes to kingdom, and by the way, who started government? Who came up with the idea? Where? Uh, Let's expand that a little bit more. Garden of Eden, it was with the social family. Where did he give authority to the community to punish people? Genesis 9, 6. Right after the flood, when they came off, that whosoever sheds innocent blood, his blood will be required. Okay, and so you have the establishment of society being able to penalize other members of society, basically control in a positive way and for positive benefits but using even the death penalty at that point. And so this idea of government has been hijacked by Satan, which, by the way, is, is, has that happened in other areas? Has Satan hijacked part of the church of uh, Christian church? Religion. Has he hijacked it? Yes. Has he hijacked family? Okay, the three institutions God started, family, government, and church. Has Satan we had a heyday with those historically? Absolutely. And so God will restore that and redeem even planet Earth and what's going on at that point. Now, just this is just additional food for you. I know it's going a little bit deeper than, than typical, but at the same time, where it says are become, it's a past tense verb. Even though he's giving future predictions, he is giving all the verbs in this passage are in the past tense, or proleptic eris is what it's called for whatever benefit that may be. But it just gives you an idea that God is speaking, and it is so sure that this is going to happen. He speaks, even though it's future, it's already happened in his mind. So that's why the author, God, with John, that's why he's doing this, and he does it frequently with Old Testament prophecies. It frequently happens when he gave prophecies about Messiah, he spoke in the past tense. Because in God's mind, it's done. It's a done deal. It's got to play out, but it's going to happen. Will Christ be born of a virgin? Absolutely. Was he going to be born in Bethlehem? It was a certainty. It was going to happen. Would Israel be redeemed one day? Absolutely. So even when you're speaking future, okay, understand, and that's not us. When we speak future, we're very 
focus on making sure all the tenses agree. They don't do that in the Hebrew or the Greek at times when they're giving prophecy. They will give the prophecy at times with a blending of future and blending of a past tense just to get you to understand it is, it is absolutely in the mind of God. So in the English, it gets rendered somewhat in a more uh, you know, innocuous sense where he's talking about the kings of, of this world are become. Literally, if we're going to give a more literal translation, it would be have become. Make it very, very clear. Uh, past tense. He also uses uh, the words here, which he doesn't typically use. But he says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. The word for Lord is kurios, okay, in the original language. And he puts it in conjunction with Christ. The reason I'm bringing this up is when we talk about kurios, that is the title given to Jesus through the Gospels frequently. Through the Gospels and the Epistles, he is called kurios, or Lord, and you'll find it an awful lot. But in the book of Revelation, kurios is mostly used in reference to God Almighty. So why does John make such a distinction from his Gospels and his Epistles where he's using kurios of Christ, but in the book of Revelation, he uses kurios for God. Does that say anything to you? It's the same person. He is highlighting, if you put his books together, he's highlighting this fact that Jesus is God. Another one of those um, um, very emphatic very clear uh, instances, but it usually goes over most of our head because we don't understand the significance from the original. But we're trying to point it out so you just see what he's doing. The author is absolutely, positively convinced Jesus is God Almighty in in the form of the Trinity. He shall reign forever and ever, and so we know this. It's a real, physical, eternal kingdom. Now, the question that, that um, well, I'll get to the question in a second. Has there been this idea of a kingdom in the Old Testament? Infrequently? A lot? A little? A lot? Do you remember any people God told them, hey, by the way, your son will be king forever and ever? Okay. To the Jews, do you remember anyone in particular? David. David, your son will reign on the throne forever. It's a frequent theme through all these different Old Testament passages. These are just a few. Where if you want to study kingdom, you're going to actually, Isaiah 60, I should have 60 through 64, <clears throat> the chapters. But it's a, it's a frequent theme that the Jews were talking about a kingdom. Did the disciples of Jesus Christ, were they looking for the kingdom? How do you know that? They asked him several times, are you the Messiah, the one who's coming? They even asked, do you remember a couple of times, two of the men came up and asked him what? Two brothers. Can we sit on your, when? When you establish your kingdom. In the book of Acts, which we're finally getting to starting this morning, in the very beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus is with them for those 40 days and before he sends, he's saying, you have to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And their response to that is, tell us when you're going to set up your kingdom. So it's a concept that you and I, we aren't as fanatical about it or emphasize it as much because when we talk about, you know, the future, what do we frequently refer to? Well, we talk about, uh, when we talk about where it's pleasant and peaceful, we talk about heaven, Okay. The Jews will be talking about the kingdom. And the New Testament writers often talk, and they were blending both of them together. But we, at this point, we talk typically heaven, and so unless you're in a Bible-believing church, you don't hear much about kingdom coming to earth, a real kingdom. But in the Bible, it is really predominant, this idea that Jesus Christ is going to come and rule and reign on earth and set up his kingdom forever and ever. So you think about it, this is something that historically believers have been saying, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And when it finally happens, what do we do in heaven? 
Yeah, we do the woohoo. Yeah, we celebrate. We're excited about it. And so you understand. Now, here's the question I have for you, because you know your Bible, and you know things that they didn't know. You, you have more. Most of you already know the end of the book of Revelation and how we're going to get there, but we're going at snail space and filling in a lot of gaps. You know that the kingdom on earth, is, when Jesus sets up his millennial kingdom, you know it lasts for how long? A thousand years. Okay? You know that, that the kingdom lasts a thousand years. So how is it that he says he's going to set up his rule and reign forever and ever, but we know it lasts a thousand years? Now, is a thousand years a long time? Yes? Could it feel like forever? Let's rephrase that. If you have a toothache at midnight, does it feel like forever? Your kid won't go to sleep. It's the middle of the night. Does it feel like a thousand years? Okay. Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying that, you know, it's going to feel like forever, but it's only lasting a thousand years? How do you reconcile this? Or don't we? Yeah, excellent answer, Bob. That, that's the, you know, even though there's going to be a new earth and a new, uh, a new heaven and a new earth at the end of the thousand years, which we're opening up the curtain looking farther down, after the thousand-year kingdom that he sets up after the seventh trumpet, um, after the 75 days of fixing up planet earth, which we'll all get to, then he's going to set up that kingdom. It'll last a thousand years. Satan will be bound. Satan's released. Satan has a rebellion. That lasts very shortly. And then he destroys heaven and earth, and he builds a new heaven and earth. And who rules there? Jesus Christ. And so basically, the essence of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, it just keeps on forever. Okay. There's just a little bit of a hesitation where Satan has a rebellion. But even in that rebellion, does Jesus Christ rule and reign? Absolutely. So uh, don't let people, and this is, this is the reason I'm bringing it up. This is a very popular argument against the kingdom, a physical kingdom coming to earth. The argument made by theologians is, well, if you say there's a physical kingdom for only a thousand years and then there's a new heaven and new earth, then he doesn't reign forever and ever. So the only way we can avoid a conflict is just say there is no physical kingdom. It's in your heart forever and ever and ever and ever. And to get rid of the idea of a real physical, literal kingdom and Jesus ruling on earth, it's just in your heart. And so that's a very popular doctrine and that's the argument that one of the arguments they use is because it creates a conflict to say a thousand-year kingdom and then say it's forever and ever. And you and I say it's not a conflict. The concept of Christ reigning continues even though the first, how do you put it? The, the first part, the first chapter of it, and then it continues on. So don't let those, don't let those naysayers convince you otherwise. Um, here we go. The praise of the 24 elders. I want you to catch something. And again, we're moving so quickly here. What do the 24 elders, what do they say about God? Verse 17. Okay, they're falling on their faces. They're worshiping. What do they point out or what do they highlight? What do they remind themselves about God? Okay, where did you get the eternal? Okay, excellent. What else do they say about him? Okay, you got that obviously from the word Almighty. Okay, he's going to be judging. It. Okay, excellent. Let's pick these apart. Okay, this Rapper Church—that's us. We're going to be excited about the kingdom. We already mentioned this because we prayed for it. We know all the benefits, and so we start praising God for it. The first thing that we mention is in that in that future conversation. First thing we mention is He's Almighty. This is just a little. Um, tidbit of information that I, that I think is really interesting. This word Almighty shows up nine, uh, ten times in the New Testament. Nine of them are in the book of Revelation. So it's a, it's a major theme. God is Almighty. What's that mean? What's it mean, God's Almighty? Okay. Several of what you just said, that idea. It has that idea. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. We understand that. Then somebody over here mentioned that he talks about his eternality. 
which were, uh, are, were, and are to come. Why is this significant? To give, to talk about God as eternal. Let me, let me rephrase it. In the Old Testament, God said the same thing about himself, but he used a different phrase or different words. Tell them, the Alpha and Omega, but somebody else does, tell them I am. What's the significance of that idea of I am, eternality? Okay, okay, so we have God being eternal means God is not limited by time, which we don't understand. Why? Or we can't comprehend. Let me put it that way. Why? Oh, yeah, we're, we're so time-oriented, we're looking at our clocks even right now. Yeah. When is he going to shut up? Okay, when's he going to move on? We're very time-oriented. Yes, no? Okay, we, we you know, when's he going to end? Because I want to get to the reservations. I have at this time of time for lunch. Okay, our, our schedule. If the day, if, if your day is thrown off by a holiday, it, it screws up our week. We can't, oh, I can't figure out what day is the week. For us here, COVID was horrible. Because our whole life is was calendar life, Sunday worship, Monday off, Wednesday Bible studies, other things happening in the week. And so we were so geared up that everything was calendar-wise. We knew the days of the week based on are we beyond Wednesday or before Wednesday. That works with you too, yes? That's because you're retired for 22 years. That's why. So, you know, your credibility is gone in that area. Okay. <laughs> you know, when I ask questions, some people just want to be contrary, just to, just to throw me off. He gets the award. <laughs> yeah, a group I was preaching to when I started a different church, I would say, have you ever had this happen? And they agreed together. When he does that, we'll all go, no. You know, and it was just... Have you ever had a discussion with your wife that got tense? No. You know, did you ever get really hungry? No. It was just, so put you in that same group. That's how I remember you. So we're talking about the eternality, not only the time factor, but I, I think put you the one that brought it, the self-existence, the self, um, uh, what word? What word do I mean? Sustenance. Does God need anybody or anything? No, no, which is beyond us. Immutability, that means what? Unchanging, unchanging, always the same, always the same. And so when he says these, we are saying this about God, that it's really a part of our worship in heaven. You are almighty, you are unchanging, you are always good, you are always faithful, even no matter what's happening around us. It's finally clicking with us to the totality that in heaven it's really made an impact. And we're excited because you have taken and you still have your great power and you're beginning to reign. Again, it's future uh, passage and yet spoken of in the past tense. One of those instances. Now, the next two verses I wanted to highlight because there's a lot of theology here and it ties to the uh, teachings of Jesus. But the next two verses, verses 18 and 19, I just want to point this out. We don't know for sure. Maybe you do, but the rest of us don't. We don't know, is this something that the 24 elders continue to say? Is this something we're talking about? Is this something that John is just putting in as editorial notes? Is this something, who is saying this or making this? Is an angel revealing it? We don't know, but it's true because it's in this passage. It's inspired by God. So who is the one saying it? I'm not sure. But here's what they're saying, which is really important. What we read in verse 18 is the world will have a response to the idea of Jesus coming to earth at this, to this time and setting up his kingdom. What is the world's response when they realize Christ is coming back? They're angry. The word that he uses here for angry is a really strong word. It's the idea of not just say, hey, that driver upset me. Or, hey, I'm upset that the meal got burnt. I'm upset that, you know, my boss is asking me to work a little bit overtime. That's not the upset or the, the you know, anger. This is the strongest word that they could have used for anger in their language. 
It's the idea of rage, hostility. This is madman rage, murderous rage. That's out of control. And so he says in this passage that they are extremely angry, deep-seated hostility, despite, and this is that they won't, you know, it's being planned, despite all that God has been doing, all the warnings, the prophets, everything, they still will not repent. But they're not the only ones who have an anger. The text mentions somebody else is upset. Who is it? God. All of a sudden he makes, they were angry, and the author says, and you're, speaking to the Lord, you are angry, your, your hostility, your, and we know God's under control, but this idea of God is responding in like to how they responded to him. Not tit for tat and the idea of not being in control, but this is where God is saying, I'm going to do judgment. Okay? And he's going to do judgment because this is going to lead to tremendous judgment happening here. He's alluding now in this text that there's going to be people put in hell. And God is judging because God is angry with, because of his holiness, with their sin. And so he refers, he says, your wrath is come, referring to his judgments, and he makes allusion that this is the time of the dead that they be judged. So now he's bringing us into that judgment that Jesus spoke about, that all men will one day be judged by God, and Jesus is the one that will be the judge. And so what we have here is the first inkling or in, uh, indication in this text of worldwide judgment taking place, especially of the lost people. But he also includes who else in this passage? Who else is going to be judged? Your servants. And he includes who with, with them? Your servants, the prophets, the saints, them that fear thy name. How many of them? Small and great. And so what you have is he is putting together in one sentence, there's going to be a future judgment of the lost and of the saved. And he doesn't distinguish between the, the timing of these judgments, but he just puts them all together in this initial statement. Now that brings us to a question, is this when we are judged? The servants, small and great, the prophets, is this when we get judged? We're not sure. Is this when we get our rewards? Okay, because you're saying to give the rewards to the servants, etc., etc. Yeah, is this when we get our crowns? What'd you say? How do you know that? Do you have a passage to back up? Yes, you do. Revelation. <laughs> We already did this with our crowns. Back in chapter 4 and 5. Do you remember in chapter 4, at the end, look back at chapter 4. When we are standing before the throne sitter, the 24 elders, what do the 20, let's do it, let's go back. Okay. This is historically important that you get this right because this is another one of those texts that people will throw at you and say, well, see, we get judged at the end of the tribulation, therefore we're not raptured until the end of the tribulation. And so, here we go. Uh, we're in Revelation 4. What do you have in verse 10? The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and they do what? They worship him, and they cast their crowns where? Before the throne and say, got it, Okay. So we already got our crowns, which are our rewards, and what did we do with it? Why did we do that? Okay. Does he deserve them? Yeah. Okay. So we already gave the crowns. So our judgment as church saints came before the seals even started. We're in heaven. We're already casting our crowns before the seal judgments take place. So with that in mind, then who are the servants that he's talking about in this text? Is it us? No. Okay. And that's, have there been other saints up to this point? Have other people been getting saved? Yes. Okay. In particular, whose ministries did they get saved under? 144,000? Two prophets. Okay. Have a lot of them died? Okay. Will some of them be alive when he comes back? Okay. 
So he's talking about a judgment that's taking place when Jesus Christ comes back to earth. Our judgment doesn't take place on earth. Our judgment takes place at the Bema Seat in heaven. And we're not judged whether or not we get into heaven because we're already there. Our judgment is not whether or not we deserve to get into heaven because none of us do. Our judgment is based upon what we did, how we served Jesus Christ. Okay, it has nothing to do with whether we believed or not. Our belief is already, we're secured in Christ. This is a different judgment. This is a judgment of lost and saved all at one time, but which ones? Who are they? And I think what will make sense is if we go to Matthew 25. Let's go back to the book of Matthew, and let's tie in the words of Jesus Christ. When he is giving, and they're saying to him in the book of Matthew, his last week of ministry, they're saying, when are you going to set up your kingdom? And Jesus starts telling them, you will not see the kingdom until you see certain things happening first. You're going to hear of wars, and you're going to see famines, and pestilences, and they're going to, they're going to you know, bring family members and accuse them. And then you're going to see the abomination of desolation occur. And that's going to happen at the midpoint. And all of you people, he's talking to Jews, all of you people, when you see these things happening, run for the, the hills, basically. Don't go up to your top of your house. Don't go back and get your stuff. Just run for your... So he's explained all that. And he's talked about those things happening. So he's described the tribulation. Then we jump down further into that very same passage where he is speaking. And he says in verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all of his holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered who? All nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he shall set up the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left hand. And he is doing what we are going to refer to in the Bible as the what judgment? The sheep goat judgment. This is a judgment of all nations that Jesus predicted. What nations is he talking about in Matthew 25? The same thing he's talking about in Revelation 11. At the end of the tribulation, it is going to be the judgment of basically who can enter into the kingdom. Remember, he's ending up. He's giving you a, a big summary. He's saying when I, he comes back, he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to have a judgment of all these people, because there's going to be a lot of people that have lived through the tribulation. There's going to be a lot of people who died during the tribulation. He's going to have a judgment of whether or not you get to go into the kingdom. And in, according to Matthew 25, he will say, to, unto them on the right hand, come blessed of my Father, inherit the what? Did you see it? The kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And he's going to say, here's how you proved your quote-unquote worthiness. You and I know this. Except a man be born again, he cannot see or enter into the kingdom of God. The basis of entering the kingdom is being born again. But by their blank, you shall know them. By their works and by their fruit. And so he says, okay, I'm going to show that you, that you can enter the kingdom because you believed. How is your belief portrayed? Watch what he says. Here are, the, here are the works of belief during the tribulation. When I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked in, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed or thirsty and drank? When did we see you as a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? And when saw we thee sick or in prison? And I will say, truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto who? One of the least of... My brethren. Who's the brethren? Taken in a physical context. Who's his brothers? His fellow countrymen. Who, who would that be? Jewish people. Uh, you have done it unto me. And so, belief in the tribulation, if there's a believer, 
What is their reaction towards the Jews and other people being persecuted? You're a believer. Let's, let's take a scenario that's, that ought not to be. You're, you don't get saved until you're living in the tribulation. You're in the tribulation. You're a believer. Evidence of your belief is going to be displayed by what towards the persecuted Jews and the persecuted saints? You're going to, you're going to try to help them out. You're going to hide. You're going to hide Anne Frank's family in your in your business. You're going to put yourself in danger. And so he's talking. He says this is. It's not enough that you say, you know, I knew you. I did many wonderful works. You're putting your life on the line here. He then he goes on. He mentions this. He said, uh, you shall. You have done at least to me. And then he, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for who? By the way, so taking that verse, what is mankind, who any man, person who ends up in hell? This wasn't God prepared for you. It was prepared for who? Satan. You're a trespasser there, but you opted to trespass. And so he's making it very clear. God didn't prepare this for people. God prepared this for the demons that rebelled. And he says, I was hungry, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick in prison, you didn't visit me. In other words, what will be the unbeliever's response to the persecuted Jews? They're going to want nothing to do with helping them. In fact, what has the unbeliever's response been when the two prophets died? They celebrated. These, they're they're anti God. And Jesus is going to make it clear. He said, When you saw me hungered, thirst, stranger, naked, sick, or clothed, and did not minister, and they said, Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they'll go into judgment. So what you have is Jesus giving a, a glimpse of what Revelation is talking about. Where Revelation is going to be that judgment. That's going to be a summary judgment called the sheep goat judgment of those who have come out of the tribulation. Not us, we're already in heaven. But the believers that have come out of it and how have they responded during that time to the persecuted peoples and their destiny will be one of two places. Heaven or hell. So Revelation 11 then builds upon what Jesus has already said. And so it's not a confusion of when the rapture takes place. It's dealing with the sheep goat judgment. That is totally different. Now, while this judgment is taking place, we're back to that. He's going to give rewards. And so part of the believer, small or great, which is going to be basically very similar to what Jesus said. Do you remember any time where Jesus gave an instance or an illustration where believers would be rewarded? for what they did. Okay. Do you remember any stories? What's that? What are you referring to? Okay. He's talking about the one parable That um, I think it's right about Matthew 20. It's up here in just a second. I'll put it up. He's talking about the one parable that Jesus gave that in the morning he went out and said, who wants a job? He hired this one, this one, this one. Comes back a couple hours later. Who wants a job? Hire you, you, you. Comes back towards the end of the day when it's almost after, you know, getting towards the end of the day, he hires a few more. And what does he pay him? And what do the people do? They get mad. And he's basically, he summarizes and says, I was just in hiring any of you at any time. In other words, when I saved you, it doesn't make any difference if you get saved on your deathbed or not. It's just by grace you got saved. And whatever you did, as long as whatever that time frame was for you to serve. Some of you got saved when you were kids. Some of us got saved when we were teens. Some got saved in their latter years. Is there rewards for any of us, even though some had longer time to serve? It's, it's going to be very, very equitable by the Lord and gracious. That's in Matthew 20. In Matthew 25, I think this is the one you just alluded to, that he gives some people, I'm going to get, there's two of them that I get mixed up. Five talents, two talents, one talent. 
or 10.5.1. It's stated a little bit different in two passages. And so he gives the talents, and what does he do at the end of the the time? The master gives the talents, 5.10.1. Was the master goes on a trip, comes back, show what what did you do with the talents? Okay, and so those who who were successfully using the talents, he's going to reward them. In fact, he even says, this one who hid the talent did nothing. Give her talent to one of the others who are faithful. And then you have another one that were, where another parable that plays here. That's, that's this. I'm trying to get you to see, it's, it all ties together so perfectly. And we just study it together. It's just, it's amazing how all of this, Jesus is teaching the book of Revelation. They just hand in glove. Um, he says that he's going to destroy them that destroy the earth. This is a passage rarely used by a certain element of our society. But you know how they pick certain verses just to prove a point? The truth shall set you free. So therefore, we shouldn't have people in prison. Um, this is one of those that the, the green movement uses. Okay, and it's like you're gonna green movement's gonna use a Bible verse. God's gonna destroy them that destroy the earth. What's he talking about in this text? Is he talking about if you're if you're not an environmentalist, you know, trying to protect and save the planet, you're gonna go to hell. Is that what this text is talking about? You know it's not. Come on, you know it's that this isn't. Yeah, what's he talking about? Who's the destroyers of the earth? How are the unbelievers destroying the earth? Okay, let's put everything together. By their conduct, by their antagonism to God. Uh, let me back up. Let me, let me start with an illustration. In a in sense, was Pharaoh responsible for the destruction of Egypt? How so? If he had listened, and we don't, this is subjective, okay, but if he had listened at the beginning, would, would Egypt, and we know that that didn't happen, but could Egypt have been spared? Did he get advice to let him go? Yes, and it led to the final destruction of their own personal family members. So in, an, in a sense, did Pharaoh bring on the judgment to himself and to his nation? Okay, the destroyers of the earth. The earth is being devastated and decimated. Why? Because the people, I'm, I'm pretending you're a lost people living in tribulation. Because we, living in the tribulation, what has been our response to God? Rejection, rebellion. And so what's God done? More judgment. Another judgment. Another judgment. And what do they do? They run into the caves and say, Fallen us, hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne. And so they're bringing these. They're destroying the earth by their own sinful reaction and rebellion. And that's what he's referring to. And, it's, and by the way, has sin affected planet earth? All the way from the Garden of Eden, Right? And so it's just going to continue. This is the law, the judgment of the lost. And by the way, Jesus gave another parable. There's a parable in Matthew 25 that some of, or 21 that some of you remember, um, where the man owns a vineyard. People over there are renting the vineyard. They're supposed to pay him annually. So he sends his messengers to collect his annual fees. And what do they do with the messengers? They kill him. So he says, okay, that's a bad thing. That didn't work. Bad shame on them. I'll send who? My son. They will respect my son. Son comes. They kill the son. And so then what does the the owner of the vineyard do? He comes and destroys them. Destroys them. Jesus, again, has put this all laid, laid this out without all the details of Revelation, but he's laid it out perfectly clearly. Tie his teachings together with the book of Revelation, and it is fascinating. So at the end, I was supposed to be through chapter 12 today. Um, at the end, what happens in the middle of all this judgment? Verse 19, something really phenomenal happens. 
Okay, the, the heavenly temple, it opens up. And when this heavenly temple opens to John's sight, what does John see? Okay. Okay, he's seeing into this, this spot, and he particularly makes comment that he sees the Ark of the Testament, or we call it the Ark of the... What is... Where is the Ark of the Covenant? It's in the, it's in the temple. It's in the innermost sanctum of the temple, and we all remember this now. In this innermost sanctum, who could enter, and how often? Okay, what about you? No. So what is this picture in the middle of this judgment that all of a sudden the Ark of the Covenant is being visible to John and everybody else? What does that say to you? Okay. So what we're, we're again, this is, the, verse 19 is mercy. Is the mercy, the grace of God that's being poured out here just at the end of it and with that idea that God will have fellowship. God is not anti-people. He is pro-people, but he's anti-sin. And so he makes that very, very clear. So John then hears the thunderings and the lightning. As we were going to summarize it this way, that you have power over God's creation as seen here. Let me just give you these and we've done. God has a plan that he is following. He has it historically. He also has it for your life that he has these plans that he is following. No matter how it get bad it gets, God's in control. So important for us to remember that in our daily crises. Something else that stands out, our resistance, our reaction doesn't change nor deter God's plans. We, we can't resist him. Our, our puny attempts will not stop God's plan for mankind as well, even on an individual basis. God always retains his power and authority through all the ages, even though, quote-unquote, you might say he's getting older, which we know he's not because he's outside of time. But even though years go by, even though man's resistance, God's authority and power is always the same. He will set up his kingdom one day. He will do it, friend. We will get there. It's going to happen. You and I say, you know, it's going to happen. It's a reality, and it's going to be far better than what we're experiencing now. He will judge people, okay? He never changes his thoughts or attitudes towards sins. God is not like our society where we get used to it or we start tolerating it. God is always holy. He will show mercy at all times, and in time, we will have unlimited fellowship with God. It will happen. In the meantime... Can we worship and get in His presence? Yes.